0: Hello, I am Sebastian Teotrio. And I'm Alex Hollingsworth. Welcome to the Hidden Curriculum,
1: a podcast where we talk about all the stuff you didn't learn. When you
0: Hello, everyone. Hope you had a great week. We're excited to bring you another episode of the podcast, Alex. Out of the ten people you would like to follow for a day like follow as in like shadow or like stalker kind follow? kind of kind of like a stalker, but like, they okay. know it's like, all they're
1: aware I'm there. Okay.
0: Potential. Yes. Who would be one of them?
1: Oh man. This caught me totally off guard. Um,
0: it was, it was prepared by the,
1: <laughs> it was, I did, but I didn't read it. I was looking up other <laughs> uh, icebreaker questions. I was going to ask you your favorite sandwich. Oh. Um, let's see. <laughs> I don't know LeBron James that's okay. a cop out cause he's super famous, but like he yeah is a really interesting guy. I yeah. Know. I like LeBron. Yeah, that's good. What about right. you? Uh, I probably should have thought <laughs> about this one too. Yeah. As I
0: was reading, I was like, "Who would I pick?" Um, I think I think I would like to follow the life of a president. Like, what is their day to day? Donald J.
1: Trump? Not really. <laughs> not
0: Not my.
1: Not in my opinion. It's the week um, before inauguration. Yeah, so I, I had to.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, any? I think like I guess I, I was thinking of the Peruvian president, but but oh yeah. Uh, I would take any president. I just like want to know, like, what is it day to day like? Because
1: I have an idea. It's probably you know, really what? tiring, right? It's probably like yeah. less exciting and really boring. Yeah, but I want to know that. So that's yeah. good. All right. What about you, Catherine?
2: Oh, gosh. Tough one. Um, I think I'll be much less, um, I guess, intellectual than either of you. I think I'd like to follow around Britney Spears. I'm going to know what like. I'm a big fan.
0: No. Although that would be kind of sad given I just hear a context right of like the free right. Spears. Thing. I
2: think that well, it's it's a well that's a podcast itself. I think oh, there's some okay. dispute about this uh, oh, oh. conservatorship for Britney Spears. I <sighs> I just want to know what her her life is like. She's a I'm a big fan have been yeah. for quite a while.
1: That I would be it. I, yeah. I also, I just want to say, I don't think LeBron James is more academic than Britney Spears. I I think
2: he he opens schools. I think he does. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough.
1: Yeah. I was also going to say the Pope. It's like, what is in mm. the, the life of the Pope? Like, you just you want to follow around busy people. It's going to be like one 15 minute meeting to the next. <laughs> yeah, year. I guess that's true. So, uh, thank you for that. Uh, and as you may have guessed, our uh, guest this week is Catherine McLean. <clears throat> Catherine is an associate professor of economics at Temple University. She researches uh, substance use, uh, health economics, labor economics, and uh, she has done a ton of work on insurance coverage and labor market outcomes. She's a research associate in the Health Economics Program at the National Bureau of Economic Research and a research affiliate at the Institute for Labor Economics. She's a co-editor of JPAM and an associate editor at the Journal of Health Economics. She also has her research supported by the National Institutes of Health, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the American Cancer Society, and the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. Sorry, it was such a long bio, I forgot there. The the last bit of funding, uh, very impressive. Uh, So Catherine, thank you very much for joining us. And in addition to learning about your awesome academic exploits, could you please share a fun fact with us?
2: Ah, let me see. Fun fact. Okay. I'm not sure if this is a fun fact or a crazy fact, but uh, for context, I live in a small Philadelphia row house um, and I have not one, not two, not three, not four, but five dogs. Mm -hmm. Their names are Mickey, Max, Mona, Murray, and Maple, or 5M as we like to call them. <laughs> so that is my fact, be it fun, crazy, or otherwise.
0: <laughs> that is that is a lot of dogs. But just so just so uh, we know it's true, can you say those names again but in backwards
2: oh gosh, this is a tricky one. I think I can. Maple, Murray, Mona, Max,
0: and Mickey. Yeah. Well, I don't even know if that, that was that right. Got you could have just
1: said five different you names. <laughs>
0: But that's why they do doing Goodwill Hunting. Where where are the pets right now? Um,
2: they are in different rooms um, because I do not think we could complete this <laughs> interview in any sort of sane way with the five of them.
0: Have you ever traveled <laughs> with the five of them?
2: No, we uh, we don't. We actually, when this is a big a personal expense, when we go on a vacation anywhere. Um, it is oftentimes more expensive to board the dogs than it is for us to take like a trip to a city like New York so <laughs> wow. they are quite they are quite a handful but we love them
1: well thank you for that uh, so before we dive into today's topic uh, we'd love to talk about your work uh, there's a lot of it but if you'd love to highlight uh, any particular paper uh, we'd love to hear about it
2: Sure. Thanks so much. Well, I'm I am very blessed to have really fantastic colleagues. uh, So that really helps me um, be engaged and and allows me to do the research that I've been able to do. I guess instead of a paper, if it's all right, what I'd really like to do is I'd love to plug a new effort that I'm working on with colleagues of mine. Uh, that's great. Um, so colleagues and I, uh, Mike Pesco at GSU, C. Shang at Ohio State, and Justin White at University California uh, at San Francisco, um, we run the Tobacco Online Policy Seminar, or TOPS is our acronym. A good acronym is important for any seminar. Yes. Um, and really, what the our mission statement is is we have it's breaking silos and showcasing TOPSNETS research. So what we focus on is we focus on tobacco, as is perhaps evident by the name of the series. What we want to do is we want to create a space um, for researchers in tobacco control. Uh, tobacco control is a very interdisciplinary field. There are many economists; could um, name many of them that we all know who have participated in this research, but there's also um, researchers from other fields. And uh, this is a very complex, uh, detailed field. So all are welcome. What we try to do with TOPS is we try and set the stage where people can come together and talk about research. Uh, There's a lot of um, siloing as this Mm. occurs in many fields, but in particular, there's Really controversial topics around e cigarettes, in particular, where folks on different sides feel very, very strongly one way or the other. So, we wanted to have this space for discussion, and in particular, What we wanted to do is showcase the value of experimental and quasi-experimental research designs for studying questions related to tobacco control. Uh, So this is something that we're running. We run a seminar series about every two weeks. Again, it's interdisciplinary. We have traditional formats where people present a single research paper. We have grand rounds, which are more common in medical schools where a researcher will talk about a body of research that is connected. Uh, We also have workshops, we had a really fantastic workshop on how the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, utilizes research in its decision making and kind of the role for experimental and quasi-experimental research. So uh, we're just about to announce our winter series where we nice. have uh, 10 papers, but we periodically put out calls. And we would just love uh, any of the, your listeners who are interested, if they have something on tobacco control, we would love to have them submit. Um, and get, our website is tobaccopolicy.org.
1: So and awesome. it's a, a top cool. notch looking website. This is looks great. <laughs> it looks really similar to eHEC. I don't know. Is there like some format that you, you guys you guys use for this?
2: I, I think so. I think and we we definitely we Built on the shoulders of giants while we view our our uh, seminar series as very much a compliment and not a substitute to eHack, I'm actually on the, the advisory board for eHack as well. We learned a lot from them and they were extremely helpful sharing sort of thoughts and templates and how to organize things. So we do owe a lot of the organizational structure to them and it's, we're very grateful.
1: It's awesome. And just so people are clear listening, I meant like the physical website looks like E-Hack. <laughs> this is an awesome standalone series, but it's uh, it's really cool. Thanks for sharing that.
0: Thank you. That's awesome. And for this, um, and for this initiative, is it uh, just? I mean, I'm guessing it's not just for economists. It's like anyone who's interested in this kind of work.
2: Yes, anyone. It's interdisciplinary by nature, uh, and we welcome people from different fields. We'd love to have economists, non-economists. Um, we've had great uh, talks by epidemiologists. Uh, med- we have a medical doctor from. Uh, the University of Pennsylvania Medical School coming uh, this week. So oh, we welcome all. Yeah, just awesome. be, we're focused on tobacco control, experimental and quasi-experimental
0: research. Awesome. So now let's dive in a little bit into your workflow. And I'm very excited to hear this. So full disclosure, Catherine and I have been co-authors before and I feel like she's super productive and I really want to (laughs) know how is Catherine's like day to day, how she plans things, you know, what does she, uh, you know, how does she plan this whole thing? So tell us a little bit, Catherine, about your workflow. Which
2: I was hoping I could ask you folks that I, you'll be very very disappointed to know I'm still working on getting my life together and my work-life balance. So (laughs) I have no secrets. (laughs) Um, yeah, no, well, you know, I get up in the morning, um, and, um, deal with my five dogs. Um, and then on, I'm very old school. Uh, I would love it. I see people on Twitter, including both of you talking about these apps. I, I write, a, I write a list. Um, I'm oh, okay. very I'm like, like my mother and my grandmother writing things down, um, <laughs> uh, trying to, I, I always aspire to being better organized, but yeah, uh, at 41, still not there yet. So <laughs> working on it, but uh, yeah, definitely. I think one thing that is, again, I, I come back to this, I, I'm really blessed to have really great co-authors and just keeps me motivated. So I oftentimes research is not really work. It's fun. Um, I'm talking with smart people who I learn from and they're on topics that I really care about. Uh, I care about from both an economic and sort of academic perspective, but I also sort of care about the idea of substance use and how public policies can be utilized to improve outcomes for individuals and in society. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure if that's a specific series, but uh, or uh, I guess uh, workflow, but that is my uh, mm-hmm. old school ad hoc approach mm-hmm. to trying to get things done. But I'm always behind, so I don't know. <laughs>
0: And do you like, so, for example, in a given day, do you know what you're working on that day? Um, I mean, obviously you have meetings, so that's always already the schedule. but like in the non-meeting times, like how how does how is it that you know what to work on?
2: I'm usually, uh, I follow sort of just-in-time production. I am working on the project with the closest deadline, Mm -hmm. Um, but also I do, my work is grant funded. So uh, some of my work, I am in a hard money research position at Temple University in the econ department, but also um, a lot of my work Mm -hmm. is funded by uh, the institutes and agencies that that were mentioned earlier. So I do sort of have time that is blocked off each week to meet the requirements and uh, that's you know, lucky to do this, but the requirements of those research grants. So I definitely make sure that my contracted work is done. And then I fit in my um, unfunded work otherwise. And Uh, that's, so I kind of have that sort of their projects that are always something that I'm working on each week. Uh, For example, I have an R01 where Mike Pesco is the PI and that's on uh, vaping uh, and e Mm cigarette regulations. So each work, each week I'm working on that, uh, working on other funded work. Uh, Just today I was working on Robert Wood Johnson grant that sort of had, we have uh, some work that's, that's kind of, you know, do within our timeframe. So kind of getting, getting that done. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of, uh, in addition to the don't want to say constraints, but the yeah. the structure that is offered by the grant funding, I'm usually working on uh, what is uh, what is most due.
1: So, so just given the sort of random nature, or at least in my experience, random nature of receiving or not receiving grants, when you're applying for grants, are you like thoughtful of like, well, I have these things in existence already, or do you just apply? And because it's, you know, each one is a low probability, you're like, if I'm lucky enough to get this, I'll figure it out.
2: Um, a little bit of, more so of the latter. I think you're right. I think a very wise and incredibly successful person said to me at one point, and this was when pay lines were higher, uh, if you're doing really well, you're winning 10% of the time. So mm. I think, um, you know, and I speak with my colleagues who are in soft money environments, and this is very much their reality that, you know, there's mm-hmm. you just oftentimes a good a strategy can be just put several in. If you happen to get to the point where you have too many, that would be almost a, um. Uh, a problem of riches uh so mm-hmm. what i what i do is i do think about what i have what my teaching requirements are um, and through my research grants, this is perhaps not uh, specifically on topic, but I am in a hard money research environment. So what my soft money, my research funding allows me to do is I'm able to uh, buy out some of my teaching time. So wow. uh, typical load is a 2-2. Uh, I'm in a 1-1, and I have been uh, for the past That's few amazing. years and anticipate that. Um, so, yeah, so I tend to sort of apply for many and expect lots of failures and just hope for one small success. And if that happens, then particularly within a hard money environment that goes, that goes quite far.
0: Right. Uh, One question that I have for you is like, do you feel like you have like a limit on a number of projects that you work on or like conscious limit, or is it kind of like, you know, papers or projects coming in and out from different phases? So you don't really need at this point to manage that that well?
2: Oh gosh, that's a really good question. Um, I like that uh, project capital. That's a, a great, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm going to use that, but I'll quote you. Um, I do feel that right now um, I'm, I am at the upper limit. Um, I'm, I don't think at this point I can really take on new projects. Now within that decision, uh, I have allocated fi- funding or time in my mind that mm-hmm. these ongoing research projects, those will Um continue to lead to more projects, so I want to make space for those future projects that I I can see in the future, but are not going to start at this moment due to things like um, I'm planning a an experiment around e-cigarettes using, oh, super cool. uh, yeah, but of course, you know, with COVID uh, you need to really think about, you know, when might, when can we even think about that deploying it? Uh, that certainly um, can't, I don't want to think about doing that in the middle of COVID. So we're thinking about that could be depending on distribution of vaccine and so on and so forth. That could be late summer. That could be fall 2021. Gosh, who knows, maybe a bit longer. So we have the funds budgeted and we're planning, but we really can't do um a ton until we really can think about, you know, when are we going to get this done? Uh, so sort of ideas like that. Um, so I hope that answers your question. Yeah.
0: Well, I think one important question about workflow is also like, you know, uh, times to kind of like rest and, and, and not do work. My question for you is like, do you have kind of like time scheduled like that with a day or is it more pet driven? That's your talk. you're like it's time to go out it's time for you to stop working
2: <laughs> that's a great question it's a little bit of both um my husband and I are both economists so we both uh, particularly now with with COVID working at home um sort of when does the day end when does the day start that's it's more <laughs> it's less clear than it used yeah. to be uh so we, we definitely dedicate time to you know, you know take time off so we can rest because it is mm-hmm. really important to rest your brain uh, and also we are we are all more than our work we are humans who uh, mm-hmm. should enjoy life as much as we can <laughs> within this the constraints we have mm-hmm. so it's a bit of both we definitely take time off um, each each weekend to do some you know fun nice. well, fun things are less fun <laughs> now but they uh, try to do fun things which may be things right. like working on lego that maybe
0: oh yeah that's right that's a that's another fun fact for you guys that's right. i guess
2: so we're working on a tree house right now so we'll see how
1: long Ooh. that takes us
2: i know
0: what's
1: going to be the so. final size
2: the final size of the tree house
1: yeah. are you going like life scale but with little legos
2: or? oh i like that maybe maybe the next one no this one's just it's small enough to fit in our table but yes i like maybe maybe in the future nice. in the future that's awesome <laughs>
1: Um, this is one I'm actually really excited about. So one of the things that uh, was really confusing to me, not just in graduate school, but also after I started my job as an assistant mm-hmm. professor, with how the heck do journals work? Uh, <laughs> and I I never—it's magic. Yeah, <laughs> it's magic, right? It's a big black box, but but it does really seem that way sometimes. And you know, you've had number one a lot of publishing success, but number two, uh, some experience now on the other side, uh, at, working as both a referee but also editor at different journals. So we'd love to just discuss that today to sort of shed some light on, uh, you know, for our listeners, like how do journals work? How should you think about a journal as a person that wants to publish something, uh, but also think to think of the people operating the journal as human beings. Um, So I think if we just started off and you could maybe explain your, uh, I don't know, path to becoming an editor sounds kind of like a weird phrase, but I I guess if uh, whatever that means to you, if you could sort of walk through it. Sure.
2: That's a great question. Um, and uh, I I don't have a fantastic uh, sort of sequence of events that led me to um, mm-hmm. where I am right now. So just to be clear, I'm a co-editor at the Journal of Policy Analysis Management. I'm an associate editor at the Journal of Health Economics. And those, those are both quite different. And I'm happy to, I'll speak about those later. Um, but the the, how I came to work for or work with JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, is uh, I had published a few papers in JPAM and I It's very much a journal that speaks to me. I'm very interested, as I mentioned, in public policies related to the subjects that I study. A lot of my work is, you know, one could pitch it as policy evaluation, um, but, you know, kind of trying to learn from the experiences of different policies that have been adopted by various different localities across time. Um, So I got an email from Ardell Tekken, who is the editor-in-chief or EIC at JPAM, uh, and it was roughly, I think, a little over two years ago. I joined JPAM in January 2019, which feels like a million years ago with COVID, (laughs) but really only two in real time. Uh, I got an email uh, asking me if I would like to... Mm-hmm. Work with the journal. And I will say, um, I had to read it about five times. I <sighs> never thought of myself as someone who would be sort of playing this type of role because it's all this. Yeah. I felt like I'm just trying to figure this publishing thing out. <laughs> um, so, but I, I do from talking with others, I think many folks feel sort of that way. It's often har- hard to see that you have acquired the skills that would lead you to um, a setting like this. So, I was really honored, shocked. Uh, again, read the email about five times, and then was, mm-hmm. then was able to respond and say, "Of course, I would love to do this." Um, so there was a bit of an onboarding process. That is, you know, Ardell Ardelli uh, Massey is a really fantastic EIC. It just I've learned so much from him, sort of about how to run, how he thinks about a journal, how what the business model of a journal is. Because this is something I'd never thought of. I still don't have a mm-hmm. full grasp of, but have learned on learned more about. He sort of gave me a lot of information about how. How he thinks about the journal, what the steps are from um, receiving the manuscript to seeing it through to the end of its life, be that as a publication or be that as something else that didn't make it all the way to publication. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was really helpful. Um, I uh, really didn't know how all of this works together Mm -hmm. and exactly how an editor, what the editor role is. So, what I can do is I can speak about what how JPAM works, and what I have learned is that diff- all journals uh, are quite different. My my husband, who I mentioned, is also an economist. His name is Doug Weber. He's an editor at EER, the Economics of Education mm-hmm. Review. They have a different system, so this is really my experience right. at JPAM.
0: So let's 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 dig a little bit into that. Sure. So, like, what is you know what is the hierarchy of of a journal? There's the editor in chief, the yep. associate editor, the co editor. What is what is the difference between all of sure. them? Sure.
2: Okay, so just a little bit of background about JPAM. So, as I mentioned, we have Rodell Tekken, who is our EIC. Then, what we have is we have co-editors. We have 19 co-editors. And I will come back to the co-editors because there's actually two types of co-editors. I am only one type of co-editor. Oh, wow. Okay. We have five associate editors and then we have 31 members of the editorial board. Uh, those uh, individuals on the who are the associate editors and are the editorial board can be called upon uh, for quick time reviews and other sort of uh, feedback from people who are viewed as seen, having specific expertise around mm-hmm. topics related to JPAM. Okay. Uh, as another example, I am the associate editor at. Journal of Health Economics, and really at that journal, and I don't know a lot about that structure other than what you can see on the website, uh, but my role as an associate editor is that I will be called upon from time to time to provide quick reviews um, that is, you know, shorter duration than the typical referee review of Mm -hmm. a paper on a topic where additional expertise is needed. So that's a very different role from an editor or co-editor. Okay. Sorry.
0: Quick clarification. When you say quick review, is that that to make a decision about a paper in terms of like, should we send it out to referees or is that as a, instead of a referee or in addition to a referee or tiebreaker? (laughs) <laughs>
2: yeah, I, I think it's really as the as needed by the by the oh, um, okay. by the journal. And, also, you know, sometimes there are these you know, I'm I, right now I'm de- I'm really dealing with a paper that has had me scratching my head <laughs> and I'm kind of thinking about what I should do. So sometimes there is just that need for uh-huh. um, additional content or otherwise expertise for a specific paper because one thing I've learned is every paper is different and every mm-hmm. set of collection of referee reports <laughs> is different mm-hmm. um, so happy to speak to speak on those specific issues I've actually not called upon any of our associate editors or uh, the members of the editorial board in the two years that I have been serving at j mm-hmm. so I mm-hmm. haven't found myself in that need but they, they certainly Excited. are there to kind of play that strong supporting role.
0: And, and just another quick clarification, the editor-in-chief, should we think of that as like the CEO of the journal? Like, is that the main <laughs> person to tell the shots or, or is there like a board above the editor-in-chief that oversees their actions?
2: That, that's a great question. Um, I think, uh, you know, or Odell may, may feel differently, but I, I think the CEO is kind of a good um, analogy okay. to how I think about the structure. Okay. Um, they, you know, that is, um, you know, the their kind of running or you know mm-hmm. op, yeah. they are the lead runner of the of the of the journal mm-hmm. um so i guess back back to jpam um mm-hmm. with our 19 co-editors so there are as i mentioned there are two types so what happens when a paper arrives at jpam uh, we get roughly 600 submissions per year that may i, I believe that's going up a bit um, the will be the, the what i refer to as like a managing editor although we're all labeled Co editors, okay. uh, the managing editors, that what they will do is they receive all of the uh, manuscripts that are submitted. Mm-hmm. Now, the role of the managing editor is to determine uh, sort of a first cut of these articles. That is, is this paper, is this manuscript within the purview of JPAM? Mm. And, you know, really what we're focusing on is we are focusing on papers that have a bent towards policy analysis and. Public and um, public management. Mm-hmm. Now, for example, with policy analysis, that does not mean, and you can certainly see this by looking through the issues of JPAM, we have four per year. Um, not every paper that is policy oriented is a straight up policy evaluation. That's mm-hmm. not what we mean. It is mm-hmm. focused on policy analysis, things that are related to those questions. Mm-hmm. So the managing editors will take a look at the papers that come in uh, the roughly 600 or so, as I mentioned, and we'll decide, is this really, is this not in the purview? So you might mm-hmm. think of, I think I've heard an estimate of about 50% of papers are removed at that point because they're just not a good fit. And I think, um, as Alex mentioned, um, thinking about from the perspective of a, um, or an author of a paper, right. the submitter, a, the submitter, the person who hit submit, um, <laughs> I think one thing in particular what J and I see, and I think I believe this is true to varying extents across different journals, is you really want there to be a fit. Um, that is, there are many fantastic papers that don't sort of meet the requirements of having a focus on policy analysis or public mm-hmm. management. That doesn't mean they're not incredible papers. They're, mm-hmm. they're just not a good fit. Mm-hmm. And I've had papers that have made it to me. Um, and they just weren't a good fit, and I'll speak more about that in a, in in a bit. But really, with JPM, that is our focus, um, and our readership includes people like policymakers, consultants, operations researchers, economists, who want who are are interested in that those topics.
1: Yes. So, just a question about how to signal, like let's say you have a paper, you're an author, and you think that your paper is a good fit for the journal. Um, <clears throat> I've seen mixed reviews or excuse me, mixed advice on whether or not you should include a lengthy or even any type of letter to the editor at all. Does that, and I understand like you're not going to be able to provide advice like broadly for all journals, but in your own experience as an author and as someone on the other side, is that a good place where you can try to signify fit or should you let the abstract or other Mm. pieces of information do that?
2: That's a good question. So it's something I actually struggle with myself. And I think it is something that there is heterogeneity across different journals. I do, I I know myself, I look at the cover letter to see if there is, Mm. um, I guess I'm getting out of line, but when I receive a paper, um, I, I read the cover letter. Um, I read the entire paper and before I make a decision about how to proceed. Mm. So I do look at that. Uh, Oftentimes cover letters are very short and I don't, there's not a lot in cover letters that actually speaks to me. However, I look at it now, you know, so has it moved my needle um, at this point? No, but I haven't really found the situation where I think the evidence would be there to move my needle. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, perhaps say, for example, you have an experiment that is policy relevant, but say it's not a... Policy analysis, Mm. and so at a quick glance, perhaps someone could say, "I'm not sure if this is really policy relevant." Again, we do public management. I'm more focused on policy analysis because that's my Mm -hmm. my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, if there was information in there that and a convincing argument on a paper where I might might otherwise think perhaps that's not a good fit, I do think that could be useful. Um, I have utilized that strategy in some of my papers. You know, how how you know counterfactuals are hard to know. I'm unclear if it's. move the needle, but right. sometimes I, I like to think it did. So I think it's a good question, but I, I, for my, for my sense, if you included that information, it would do no negative. It may in fact be a positive.
0: So. Uh, that and One one question with that is you said this, this figure of like, you know, 50% of, of the papers, uh, you know, don't seem like they're as good fit. Um, is that because I guess, is that because like the submitter, uh, like did did not know. Like I feel like I know JPM. I read papers. Like I think I know what it, it's a good fit, but maybe I don't really. Or like where where is that disconnect? Or what do you feel like it's coming from that disconnect?
2: Well, I think uh, I think that it's a bit of both. Um, I think, uh, and this is this is my own personal opinion that I'm mm-hmm. speaking on right now. But there has been this movement towards um, submission fees, and JPM mm. does not have a submission fee. Mm. So sometimes I do get a sense that perhaps some some people are just uh, they. They are not shooting. familiar yeah. with the journal, and it, there's no submission fee. And sometimes there will be just something that is really, perhaps it's more of a just you know descriptive analysis that is you know is very useful, but is perhaps better suited to something like a public health journal or the equivalent maybe a disability journal uh, that is more focused on that that mm-hmm. type of analysis uh, where that wouldn't be the right fit for JPAM. And so this type of, those type of papers, and, you know, there's a reason why we do that. And um, moving, I'll I'll speak more deeply about this, but, you know, we we at JPAM, and I think many, many people in other journals as well, we really want to be respectful of both the at the right the paper writer the submitters time sitting around at a journal waiting for a review mm-hmm. if it's not a good fit that's right. really not good for the individual they should be moving on with their paper uh, similarly and I'll mention this later is uh, we want to be respectful of our referees time um, because that mm-hmm. is a valuable resource that's something I did not think about until I was mm. sitting on this on, in this particular role oh. um, So I hope that opens your question, but that's really, we're trying to think about all of these things. There's a lot of things to balance that I did not think about prior to serving in this this position.
1: Also to add something, since I think a lot of grad students um, who maybe have never submitted a paper might be listening to this, uh, a desk rejection, which is sort of what Sebastian was alluding to there, is better than many other outcomes. Like, of course, the best outcome would be like your paper is accepted, (laughs) but you'd much rather have a quick desk rejection than a long referee rejection that... Is maybe no new comments to you. Of course, like referee reports can be useful because you can learn about the paper and how other people mm-hmm. have perceived what you've written. Maybe you weren't clear. Maybe there was a legitimate error. But uh, I think of the ordering of potential outcomes, a desk rejection is certainly not your least preferred outcome. Totally, totally. I I second that.
0: We all we all. I think third, third, third. third. Yeah, third. That's right. yeah. I just third I wanted
1: third. it to just reiterate that it's not necessarily bad if your paper is getting
2: desk no. rejected. So, not bad right. at all.
0: Awesome. So we were talking about the two types of co-editors there's the managing editor which we just talked about and then what was that second type um
2: well we're, i guess i don't have a good i'm not exactly sure if we have a separate name but ace oh. not this is something that has uh, perhaps i'm unclear on this but within this uh pool of co-editors there are the managing editors and then there are the other co-editors and, and non-managing editors then <laughs> I guess so. Um, and so what we do is we uh as uh, Alex just c- correctly pointed out, um, and I was not clear, but with those 50%, that's a number I've heard, I'm not hundred percent sure mm-hmm. on it, but those those authors will receive a desk reject. Mm-hmm. Um, and that as Alex just mentioned, 100% agree, this can be very, mm-hmm. very useful. Just move along, totally. get on to the next journal that's a better fit right. for you, it's better for everybody. Now, amongst those the, the papers that move on to the next stage, one could mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. Um, they will be assigned. To a co-editor. Uh, now mm. we have nineteen. Oh, we have the nineteen. Some of those, uh, I think, roughly four are the what I was saying, the managing editors. Um, they we so we have a have a reasonable size, a reasonable number of these co-editors. So what we tra- what is tra- what we try to do is fit paper with editor. So uh, mm-hmm. I will often get papers related to. Behavioral health, which is right. what I study, substance use, mental health, uh, also just health generally. I do insurance and regulation and other types of questions. So I will typically get a paper that is broadly within my area of expertise. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean I'm an expert, in this, and this I'll mention more about why referees are so incredibly important mm. um, in this process. Um, so I will, I'll receive the paper. As I mentioned, um, I read all the documents because I want to familiarize my, myself with the paper, um, and through reading the paper sometimes, um, I will desk reject at that stage.
0: Oh, okay.
2: I will now, um, I, the, uh, Erdell, our, Erdell Tekken, our editor in chief, you know, he gives the co-editors this discretion. Okay. Um, and now why would I do this? Uh, it really builds on what Alex just said. I fundamentally think that everyone's time is valuable. And I think that a desk reject for a paper that is just not a good fit is much better than sitting around. And although at JPAN we do try and have a quick turnaround time,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
2: it's better than just, you know, it's better to move on to find the right journal for your paper. Mm-hmm. So I will desk reject a paper if I feel that it is just um, not a good fit. That is, it's not really focusing on something that's policy relevant or management, public management relevant, uh, or has some other sort of large hurdle that I just do not think will, that I see a path to publication at JPAN. That might be. Um, perhaps the paper is just really not at the, uh, quality is a, a tough word to use, but sort sure. kind of the standards I would anticipate seeing totally. in in JPM, And I don't think it can get there. Um, so that I will do that. I don't do it a lot, but I do mm-hmm. do that. Now, uh, wait,
0: sorry, one quick clarification there. So paper gets to the managing editor, that person can, you know, essentially desk reject or not. And then that person passes it to an editor that, in theory, like is familiar with the topic, and that's another opportunity for a desk reject. And that happens within like a week of receiving the paper, I'm guessing, because this is always really fast. Yes. (laughs)
2: <laughs> who knows so we do aim to have a very quick turnaround time we uh like to have if a paper is going to be desk rejected we like to have that done within 10 days um okay. so we do try and move no. very quickly
0: yeah that's something uh, i did not know that's i that's pretty interesting that you have these two opportunities here.
1: i don't want to like go too off on a tangent here sure. but like something that is like just shocked me in the past few years as i've received just referee report requests is how long this all takes and i've started thinking about it more as i have friends that are editors and things That how long does this take like of any given <laughs> week do you just like set aside like all yeah. of thursday or like like Jeez. this seems like such a it's a lot of work service yeah, yeah. like i don't it's, it's it's it seems like a lot of work
2: um So I when I got this offer, um, this opportunity, I I made a decision that this was going to be my top priority. Um, So I do um, when I I mentioned earlier, like, what's my workflow? Like, what has the tightest time timeline? I view um, a a paper coming in from JPAM as the top priority. Uh, And I try to if I can't get to the paper that day, I try and get to the paper um, the next day. And that, um, so I, it mm. does, uh, you know, just, uh, I would mention I have a paper that I'm, I'm, I'm work really kind of struggling with right now mm-hmm. and have gone back and forth with Ardell about um, I have, you know, just this week alone, I'm sure I've spent six hours on it and mm. I'll probably spend another two at mm-hmm. least. And, you know, there's, I've already, I already, have pro- I'll have read the paper four times before right. I make this decision. So mm-hmm. it, it is, but I do view it as and really important for the field. Uh, and I view this as an opportunity and a privilege. So I wanted, I made this commitment. I don't know what right. other people do. You know, I have, I have. A After this podcast, that.
0: you may get offers from other journals. No,
2: I don't, <laughs> I don't think so. You may have like so. no. none of that thing. I don't think so. i I view myself as lucky, but so it is. But I also think it's very important, and I'm really, I feel grateful that I get to to make the, to make these decisions and to help you know help the field because I think the field of policy analysis and management is very
0: important. Okay, so now it gets to the manager, to the second, second guest co editor that I see in it that is more the of a handling, the, handling editor, maybe. Handling editor, maybe. And then let's say the outcome is that they, they do think this is a good fit for JPM what Happens
2: next, great, yes. So, what I do is, and behind this, all I've meant i am not mentioned this, but you know, we have a journal website that sort of sends us messages, and when ha- you have to learn how to use the journal system, I'm a bit of a Luddite, as I mentioned, with my <laughs> writing down, let- so writing things down rather than using an app to keep my workflow. So, uh, this is this was non trivial for me, <laughs> um, but so I once I have assessed the paper, um, then what I do is uh, I look for referees. Now, one thing is, you know how do you look for referees? That's something I was not sure about. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that I do is I, in reading the paper, I write down uh, names of people who are cited and Mm. I keep a list. So Mm -hmm. these are, these are people who seem to be doing research that is related to this particular paper. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I will also do is in our journal, in our journal system, you can search by referees uh, for, by. Topic and so on and so forth. Uh, there are also, I, I think both of you are on this list, the <laughs> Google Doc, the Google spreadsheet that's going around. Oh, yeah. yeah which is yeah. That's wonderful. Right. Yes, I think Annalisa uh, Peck- Peckman yep. um, mm-hmm, organized this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is a great public service. So thanks to her. Awesome. Use that, kind of look through. T- uh, yeah, really appreciate <sighs> that public service. Um, and you, I use that to look for referees. And also, I just, again, like, these papers are assigned to the co-editors based on topic. Right. So, for so you most,
0: may know a person who's like, was a good, really good fit, right?
2: Yes. Right. And that's something that's really nice about having a bigger board is you can, to some extent, sort of fine tune papers to uh, co-editors who know the topic. So through that collection, I come up with a A list of referees. Now, what uh, potential referees? And it could be five. It could be ten. It's whatever it is. So I have this list. Then what I do is I like to have. I believe this is pretty standard. I like to have three referees um, on a paper. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what I do? Go into the journal system. um, And this is something that I hadn't even thought about. But at JPM, we don't like to overburden our referees. That mm-hmm. is, we don't want to give keep contacting the same folks and asking mm. them to review and review and review. Mm-hmm. I've heard an informal rule of not more than once every six months to ask an individual for a referee. So I can mm. look through the system, mm-hmm. I can see. Oh, well, um, they
0: referee before. I see. Yep,
2: I have a whole chronology wow. of your refereeing service at JPM. And if you haven't, if you've reviewed recently, I'm not going to ask you. So that already kind of access out some of my list of potential Mm -hmm. referees. Mm -hmm. So then what I do is I I select, I typically select four and I'll come back to that in a moment, but I want to get three. So what I do right. is I send in uh, a, a letter, an email, sorry, through the JPM system, not a letter, an email. I am at that point <laughs> where I can send emails. Um, and then what I also do, because it's an unfortunate thing about uh, JPM emails, oftentimes our emails go to, from our system, go to spam. Oh, so right. I have, I follow up every email, mm. uh, it's every journal system initiated email with my right. own email from Temple, mm-hmm. very obvious, often smart. very, yeah, very apologetic for all these double emails that I'm sending. Um, so what I hope is I hoped that I will get three people to respond to my, um, to my request.
1: Thank you for sending that second email. I missed this was on, I think my own paper, but like three or four emails from a journal once since I have my email forward to another yes. service it was caught yes. in the first email spam filter oh, no. so it's like and then i went i was like oh like i missed all this it was, I was yes. just other important <laughs> communication too but i, I
2: get my jpm yeah. emails go to my spam so i don't know how this all works but <laughs> yeah. um so I'm, I'll, I'll diligently check my spam <laughs>
1: But- <laughs> it's like an important <laughs> inbox folder for you now. <laughs> yeah that's the it's best really- tip of this of this whole pod episode yeah
2: <laughs> How important checking your spam filter is yeah your spam folder. Um, so I guess one thing and this is just sort of a pause that I would love to love to love to, love to have um, people listen to nothing else And so this would be one thing that would be really, really helpful. Um, when you see one of these emails, please respond. Um, it's totally fine if you cannot review the paper. Just if you can suggest someone else, that's amazing. If you could just say no, that is also amazing. Because if I don't have a no or a yes from you, you, it's very challenging for me to move on. Um, So what I hope is that I will get the three of the four um, referees that I've contacted but sometimes I can't and I have to continue I have mm. to wait a couple of weeks for mm. someone to respond yes or no or I eventually if I do not respond I will dismiss you which sounds mm. like a very unpleasant thing to do <laughs> but I'm just saying thank you we don't need your services anymore right. um, and uh, I so that is a one That's issue a- now one thing with JPM we do have a pretty we, we, we aspire for a quick turnaround time and I do think that we are reasonably good at achieving this um, we We have a default set for four weeks, but that is when you get the journal initiated email. You will get a default date that your referee report is due in four weeks. I see now. Um, you are able to adjust that. And we we welcome that. Particularly during the time of COVID, we want to be really sensitive to people. the fact that many people have many more responsibilities than they previously had. So we certainly are flexible around that. Although we you know, have to fit that into also sure. providing refer- uh, the authors with a uh, reasonable turnaround time for their papers. So eventually I get to Three referees um, and having potentially dismissed one. Uh, sometimes I will get four people who will respond really quickly, and then I have four referees. Um,
0: mm, gotcha. Wait and quick really quickly. So the the last because all the referees are responding at different times. Yes. The last. Referee is really is really the one who's binding in some sense because the one that responded early, like you get that first referee report, but like you're still gonna wait for the other referee report. That's interesting.
2: Exactly, and I'll I'll talk about that too because that's okay. the next stage because in the, there's a lot of waiting. Um. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) like the authors the editors are waiting um so uh sometimes I'll, i'll end up with three i'll end up with or maybe four i actually don't like getting four i really like it when i can only get three again because i go back to thinking about the referee time when i have someone out you know out for mm-hmm. one of my referees, one of our referee reports that is a potential referee, that means that other people in the system can't use them. So I always want to be mindful of that. So I really like it when I can get three, dismiss the fourth, that person can go back in the pool um, and kind of free up referee resources for for all, all members of the community. Uh, so then what I do is I wait mm-hmm. um, and I uh, wait until <laughs> I get the referee reports. Now, um Sometimes I don't have – sometimes it's not the the third referee who is binding. Sometimes it's the second referee. It really depends upon what the referee reports look like. And i like to pause before I get to that, where I, just so I could pause on that thought and just sort of really emphasize how important referees can be because uh, they mm-hmm. don't – this is such a fundamental role that I think sometimes we lose – perspective of just how important this free labor, in most cases, free labor. I know some journals will actually pay, which Mm -hmm. is great. We don't. Um, As I mentioned earlier, we try and match editor, co-editor with journal topic as much as possible. Uh, But there, even within health economics, and as I know you both know, it's a vast field. Um, Even within insurance, it's a vast field. I know next to nothing about Medicare. So when Mm -hmm. I get a paper on Medicare, I really heavily rely upon my referees. Now, if I get a paper Mm. instead that's about, say, tobacco control uh, or mental health or substance use, typically I'll know more about the content and I'll feel more confident in my own judgment. However, when it's something like Medicare, I really rely upon my referees. So what does that mean from, from the perspective of a referee? What is most useful for me is a these don't have to be long. They just have to be clear.
0: Mm. Mm. Com-
2: referee
1: really
2: referee comments and pre- that's what that's this is this is the comments that are read by both the author and myself, the editor. Um, also, and maybe maybe I sometimes think it's even more um, important. I'm not sure, but it's just as important. Is the letter to the editor? Mm. Uh, so with the report. Again, it doesn't have to be extraordinarily long, but what is really helpful is when a report lists a, a comment on the paper, and in what I call in my mind an action item. Mm. What does that What does that mean? It doesn't just mean the introduction is Bad, hard to read. Right. That's mm-hmm. that's not you know
0: not an yeah. actual thing you can do. Right.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. What I would like to know is the introduction is poorly structured because I can't understand the research question until either after the introduction or the very end of the introduction. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that Why is that former comment more useful? Because that allows me to see, is this salvageable? That means, mm-hmm. can this paper be brought up to the, the, the level that would be necessary to proceed to publication at JPAM? If it's just a bunch of critiques, but not giving me any indication, is this a major thing? Is this mm-hmm. really fixable? That's just less useful, particularly if you get into an area that I'm I'm not overly comfortable with. You know, in Medicare, um, I'm not exactly clear what makes a contribution. Tobacco control, I might be more comfortable. So if you can really speak to, I this paper is not clear on stating its contribution because I'm not sure how it sits in this blah field. That's really helpful. Or you know, if you don't like the design, you know, point out you know what 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 could be needed to fix this fix or sort of maybe you can't fix the design but maybe you can um, provide more credible estimates by doing additional robustness checking um, maybe using different data whatever it might be those are action items so then i can see can what is there a pathway to publication or is there no pathway to publication that's also i think easier for the myself being uh, the receiver of referee reports as an author i find that easier myself but more importantly in the context of this discussion really helping me think about can we achieve something here Uh, that has moved to publication. So that's really important about the, um, the, the comments that a referee gives.
1: I I actually have a question on those comments as well. I've received a few reports recently that are uh, initially kind of upset me, but upon reflection, I actually liked quite a bit. They were extremely short. They didn't list any to do's, but they were basically just like, I don't think this paper has it. It was sort of like a thumbs up, thumbs down. And, I, I sometimes think that I receive reports where I'm like, this person basically did a thumbs up, thumbs down, and then made a to-do list that seemed impossible or something. As as an editor and, and as an author, do you have any preference for sometimes, maybe there's a lot of information contained in that letter to you from the referee, but do you have any preference for sometimes those shorter things that are maybe give you more latitude than as an editor? Um,
2: That's a really good question. So I don't know if I'm going to answer this directly. I like clear reports. now. That, that all else equal. I, you know, I just not even from a perspective of this journal, but just from the field in general. I don't, I do not think that simply busy work is a good idea. That is, you know, those maybe eight to 10 re, re, robustness checks that may or may not improve the quality of the paper. We have a, an issue with papers in the field that are just too long and people don't read them. So I, for that reason, the, the busy stuff, I'm I'm not a big fan of. Um, I, I try and avoid giving my own referee reports. I hope I'm I hope I don't do that. So that I don't appreciate, but I really like clarity. Um, one thing when I, you
0: sorry, when you say clarity, you mean that like you also mean that you want the referee to say like this is to me uh, revise and resubmit this is, uh that or clarity and just like here is the the only path I see for publication.
2: So I'm going to get to that. I think that goes in the letter, not in the comments. And I do feel strongly about about this particular point. Others may disagree with me. So I, by clarity, I mean you know not just these long rambly comments that don't go anywhere. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do as an editor reading this, or as a, as an author kind of trying to figure out what you want. So that's sorry to be for me to be clear. That's what I mean by clarity in terms of the the report that you that a referee will write. Now something that I do not. I do not think is appropriate. And I've talked with other co-editors and editors and they feel the same way. Don't tie my hands in your comments to the referee. That is, don't say this paper should not be published in journal X. Don't do that because that, that ties my hand. It's confusing mm-hmm. if I want to go against you because you may have one opinion, I may have another opinion, someone else probably has another opinion. So don't do, this does not belong in this paper, mm-hmm. This or this definitely does, this paper is great because you know, sometimes you get what I refer to as fluffy referee reports, which are <laughs> just someone didn't really, I'm not sure if they actually read the paper. That is mm-hmm. frustrating as of itself. Totally. So um, I guess a side note, be if you really don't have the time to do the referee report i understand just say no and let me get somebody else who does because you know it's really challenging when i have a report that's like oh this uh i think table five should be a little bit wider like that that's not helpful um so that's what i mean by uh not tying my hands and clarity in the comments
0: yeah what can you say about the the letter of the editors
2: yeah so this here i really want clarity and now uh one, uh, one thing I do think I want to speak to at the end of this is about this particular segment is etiquette. Um, but in the letter to me, the editor, I, I would like you to be, you as you, you know, the referee, to be very open and honest about what you think. This is a time for you to say, um, I think this is a great paper. I really think this should uh, should be, mm. would be a great fit with some revisions for JPAM or whatever journal it might be. If you don't think that is true, or if or if you do, also tell me why. A very unuseful, not they're all useful, but something it's harder for me to parse mm-hmm. is if I get a referee report that when I read it, it kind of looks like maybe it's doable to me. That is this paper could move on, but you know, I'm not I, you know, you're the expert. Um, okay. but then I get a letter that says something like, I just don't think, I think you should reject because this paper is just not suitable for JPAM.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. that's not helpful for me because Mm -hmm. when i I don't know why you meet why you don't think it's um suitable so some things that you might say is what what i've come uh what i've come to do after kind of reading letters to the editor is Mm -hmm. saying things when my own reports like i think these i am recommending for example a rejection Mm -hmm. i am doing i have my A detailed comments in my comments to the the referees, but here are the key things that I have, I find troublesome with this particular manuscript. It might be something like Mm -hmm. I fundamentally don't believe this design. Um, The event studies have, if it's a policy analysis, the event studies have very bad pre-trends. I think whatever we're capturing in the post-period is a continuation of a pre-existing trend. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that this paper does not make a contribution because there are five other papers that do Very similar things. I think this contribution of this paper is not major and is better suited to a more specialized journal in the field of X. Mm -hmm. These kind of comments are really helpful because that helps me in particular say it's something like, as I mentioned, Medicare, um, where I don't know that field as well as I know other fields. Mm -hmm. um, I really value that kind of feedback because it helps me understand where to situate where this paper fits and whether mm-hmm. that aligns with the objectives of JPAM as I understand them. So in the, that letter to the editor, please, you know, synthesize, don't, don't, don't regurgitate your whole referee report because I'm sure you spent a lot of time on that, but <laughs> kind of synthesize it down to like, yes, no. And here are some key reasons why I said why? yes or no. And that's really helpful for, um, for uh, for the for the editor, at least I find it to be. Um, so that's what so that that's what I mean by clarity in the letter to the editor. I, I didn't realize the importance the of the letters to the editor until I was an editor. Mm-hmm. And then the clarity in terms of the referee report; those are comments that both the editor and the referees will see. Because I read all your letters, um, every letter that comes in, I read every report, and that's really that's like how Santa. I, form a decision. <laughs> I, I just as I said that I read your letters. <laughs> yeah
1: so as as a author right a person that receives then the reports and then information from an editor so i'm thinking about how the journals work i guess i don't want to skip a step if there's something important there about when you construct the letter to to the author but when when you're reading this information i have always heard the advice and it seems like this is going to be true here really listen to what the editor has to say because they're they'll give you the stuff from all the referees but then maybe you might not agree with the referee or you might have a you know, another referee that you're waiting their opinion more or something. I, I don't know.
2: You're getting very good advice. <laughs> That's <is> advice <laughs> I, I have received myself, and I apply that definitely. Um, the, uh, I, what I view as um, thinking as uh, at this point, being an author, a good editor is an editor who will give you direction. These are the points I want you to address. These are the points that I don't want you to address. Someone who I quite admire as, a, as an editor is Mark Anderson. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had him handle some of my papers and I feel like he is very clear
1: mm-hmm. and
2: I, I appreciate that. So I mm-hmm. try, I probably do a poor job, but I try and think of what he might do Um, but he's a great he's i've enjoyed having receiving his his referee reports so that that is good advice and i will i'll kind of look through common themes like if someone is saying if you know three referees are saying the same thing that's definitely going to be something that i'm going to say you should pay attention to and things that i think are important as well and if there's something that i do not think is important um i will say i you know you don't have to um spend a lot of time with this, and that's kind of a signal that. Perhaps that's maybe something, if you feel strongly, you don't, you could sort of state your case as to why that's, that's just not something that you feel is appropriate.
1: So I have, it, it this will seem like a non sequitur, but I think it's like totally within the theme of like hidden curriculum. Um, so a, as an author, I've always received the advice of like, just never complain to an editor, even if a referee is totally wrong. Mm. Um, and there are many journals out there. It's not like, you know, I think for, for the most case, it's not like this is going to be a top five or not, you know. Um, so just send it somewhere else and just try to deal with like, try to uh, internalize the wrong comment as, well, why did I explain it in a way such that this referee uh, uh, interpreted um, what I did to be incorrect? Uh, do, do you agree with that in general or are there situations where like you wouldn't mind or you wouldn't be offended <laughs> or it wouldn't be a violation of some like unwritten etiquette no. to, to sort of challenge a- uh, I think, I, I
2: think that's a great question. And um, I, I, I wouldn't do it all the time, um, but certainly there can be times when you can feel that if you fundamentally feel that you, something has been misconstrued, um, I, I think that in a polite way, there's a, a, there, there's a role for that. Now, I have done that, um, once, um. I was not successful uh, myself. That is, I've, I've sort of asked for to a, re, a reconsideration. Uh, I know of others who it has been successful. So um, typically, this will go to maybe the EIC rather than the co-editor. Um, mm-hmm. Different journals can be different, and the EIC can make a decision. Make a decision because that is the person who really has the vision for the overall journal. Um, so I, I would use that sparingly. Um, you know, if, if you feel that there is a factual um, error in a, say a, a referee or or an editor or whoever it might be is simply wrong on like de- something that is demonstratively wrong. Like I think it's, I wouldn't complain if someone just said, I don't think this is a good, if I, you know, if it, I don't think this is a good fit. I myself would not complain or send a, a complaint about that. But you know, if someone. Yeah, it's yeah. tough to argue. <laughs> but if there's, I, <laughs> I recall in my un- one unsuccessful case, you know, I, uh, the referee was, um they, they were, uh, they just were factually wrong on something that was, you know, there were, were there was like laws and regulations that like pointed to this this case. Uh, but, you know, the editor still felt that it was just not a good fit. So it wasn't successful. but I don't regret doing it. But, of course, you know, very polite and just very clearly laying out the case. Um, so I think I that, that I would use that very judiciously. Again, I, I, I've only done this once since I guess I got my PhD in 2012. So I, I don't see myself. I haven't thought about doing it since. So uh, that's kind of what I'd say. Uh, One other plug I wanted to make is uh, I mentioned sort of be open to me in the letter letter, to me as the editor. Um, Please be polite in your letters to the referees. You know, when you're writing your report, I've had people say really mean things like yuck about my writing or, um, you know, just sort of mean things. There's not really, there's nothing impressive about um, an anonymous rude referee. Just you can um, a colleague of mine said it best um Brant Calloway who's now at UGA he uh, said Brandon. you can yes I just <laughs> I miss Brant so much yeah. um he said you know you can ask a hard question but you can still be polite I think mm-hmm. that's very true be polite mm-hmm. because someone put some effort into this and this is their work you just, just stick to the facts
0: so this is this is really great so we're at a point where where you know the referees are writing their reports they're writing to the editor and and let's let's imagine you know. Uh, the editor decides to, to reject or, or makes a decision we know also the process a little bit of the rnr we can understand it is very similar and, and like a lot of the authors know that because we, we see that so i think let me i just want to circle into to one part of well to find a part of that process which is that the decision part which is i think obviously the most decision the most important part and i guess so is it like i guess what is something that as as an author as a submitter you maybe didn't realize and now it's a, a as an editor or a co-editor, you realize about that critical decision of should we move forward with this paper or not.
2: Personally, how stressful it is. I mean, yeah, <laughs> every every paper that I, I handle, I feel like I'm uh, I have to balance like sort of the journal my responsibility to the journal and my responsibility to put the best papers possible. And also, you yeah, this is someone's career, so I, yeah. each each one is very stressful. Um, I do th- I was less surprised at this stage, um, I think from the outside when I'm sort of moved to the inside of handling things. Um, what I really look for is I look for a pathway to, to publication. Do I see that? Now, I, ha- I have the three referees. I, and as I mentioned, as Sebastian said, is it always the third referee that's binding? Not always for me. I'm sure other refer- other editors have different thoughts. But if I have two, let's say I get the two referee reports in, one and two, and I'm waiting for three. And one and two are both saying, definitely reject. What I will do at that point is I'll review the, the, the referee reports to make sure that I agree with them, um, or at least don't disagree. If, it's, if those are the content experts, then they are the content experts. Um, but if I feel that's justifiable, um, I will sometimes at that point, I will move, if I feel comfortable that there's just not a pathway to publication, the issues raised by referees one and two are too substantial that I can see any way that we can move forward to a paper that would right. be published in JPM. I will reject at that point, and I will dismiss the third referee. Uh, that's not because I don't value the third referee's to- uh, efforts. I actually value their time, and if they haven't started, I'd like to save them some work, and I'd like to get the paper back to the authors so that they can proceed with their paper to a journal that's <clears throat> a better fit. Um, so when I when I offer a an opportunity to revise a second time. So an r and mm-hmm. uh, I just revise the first time. Um, <laughs> I really see that there is this. I feel strongly that I can see this paper if the authors make the changes that have been requested by myself, because I, I have never had a paper where I haven't had my own comments that are separate from the um, the referees' comments, if those can be satisfied, I feel very confident that we can move forward. Uh, mm. So this is a big decision because I, I view, uh, yeah. Brad Humphries once said to me that, um, you know, this is it's kind of like an implicit contract. If you do everything then,
0: mm.
2: and you do it well, then I feel like this is there's a bit of a contract here. So I want to honor that. Um, and um, so I look at the, the comments, I go through them. The ones that I think are most important, I will include in my letter and I will say, please address these specific comments raised by the referee, all are important, but these are the most important. If there's something that's less important, then perhaps I'll flag that. Then I'll have my own comments and I'll return the decision to um, to, the, to the authors and they will have a JPAM up to a year to complete this referee report.
0: All right, well, that was a great conversation. So I think in some ways things that we've learned from this conversation is that obviously a lot of journals are a little bit different but in terms of hierarchy you're going to have the editor-in-chief who is probably going to make a lot of important decisions and management about the journal you have co-editors some that are managing editors are seeing the paper like when it arrives, hot and hot, hot, and ready, and then make a decision there. And if not, they, if they like it, they send it, or they think it would be a good fit, sorry, they send it to uh, kind of like a second non-managing editor that is more in the expertise of that particular uh, paper. Um, and that is the editor really that you're going to be uh, interacting more if you get uh, uh, to be sent out to referees and so on. And while as the editorial board are more like a support kind of group where they can help with some marginal decisions on some other types of um, uh, important decisions that needs to be made. Um, and I think the other thing that it was super important is about referees and, and how to, you know, essentially write a good referee report, what to say to the, to the authors, what to say to the editor. Um, and obviously we can have a whole conversation about that and how to make that good. But that, that is kind of like uh, the gist of it. Well, thank you so much for this insight. I I learned a lot from this. This was great. Um, Every week, we like to ask our guests for a recommendation of the week. This could be anything, uh, a tip, a command, a book, quote, anything. What is your recommendation of the week?
2: Sure. I guess I have two. If I can, if I can have two, yeah. One would be um, if you don't follow David Powell, uh, you should <laughs> on Twitter. He is really funny and really smart. Uh, so I think that he improves my quit my Twitter experience. Uh, also, just going back to sort of like self care. It's like if it's uh it's a tough time right now. If you are looking for something that is enjoyable, um, but kind of takes up some brain space, but not too much lego i'm a huge lego fan i have learned hmm. how nice it is to have a project and a finished project at mm. the end so i guess those are that's all not that's not nice. nothing nothing super noteworthy but they oh. work for me
1: that's great alex what is your recommendation of the week so i was going to do this during our last uh our last week so this is just a carryover because I, I changed it at the last minute but uh, it's almost the start of the spring semester right now i'm not sure when this podcast will air and uh a thing that I get a lot during the semester, and I'm sure other people do too, is like similar emails from students. So, like, I'll almost always at the end of the semester get some email asking for extra credit, or you know, some email that uh, you know is about a, a bad experience a students had where they they're going to miss a day of class or something. And sometimes I'm short on time. Uh, I basically every day, um, and so what I've been using recently to make those responses to students uh, nicer and more complete is an email template for those situations. So I basically have like a pre-written email in my Gmail that I'll like copy and paste back in as a reply. And then I'll like fill in the student's name and like, maybe I'll like edit one little thing. And it enables me to still be polite and fully Mm. communicative with the students without wasting too much of my time. And I know some people take these like, like they use like keyboard maestro or something like to the extreme. And they have these types of snippets for like lots of different situations. I pretty much just use them for like missed exams or like extra credit uh, right. or things, but I find it really helpful. Cause I get like, I don't know, 20 of those emails a year or something. So it's, it saves cumulatively a decent amount.
0: Of I, use, I use them for my relationships with people.
1: <laughs> 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 so I said what I said when I was hungry. Yeah, Sebastian, <laughs> yeah. This is the exact same email you sent me last year.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Awesome. I love that. Uh, My recommendation of the week, um, we're going to make it in in, in theme, uh, but this is a true recommendation of the week. This is not sponsored. Um, I've been listening to J-PAM's Closer Look, which is a podcast Ah. that summarizes the papers that I've been uh, publishing or going to be publishing. It is hosted by Seth Gershenson. He's an associate professor of public policy at American University. Um, Anyways, it's a great podcast. They summarize um, the research from the author and it's a conversation. I listen at 1.3 speeds and I feel like I'm reading a paper. So 15.
1: That is really fast.
0: Is it? I'm trying to I'm go impressed. to 1.5. Your so. brain wow. must just process I, apparently 1.3 times faster than mine. As when you listen to fast or things faster, you're becoming less empathetic. So if you've noticed that i become less empathetic, <laughs> that's fine.
1: I was meaning to talk to you about
0: that. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, uh, Catherine, for being here with us today. If people want to find more about you, your work, and tops, where should they go?
2: Oh, well, I guess for tops, please go to um, TobaccoPolicy.org. We'd love to have you check us out. Uh, you can just look at my website at Temple. It's pretty uh, basic. It's, I'm not teaching this semester, and I'm actually going to follow Alex's guide on how to make your own website. So that's something that I'm going to work on, but uh, that's where you can find out a little bit more about me.
0: Great. That's all we have for you folks today. Make sure you subscribe and leave us an review whenever you have the time. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye. Thank you.
2: Thank you.